0: hi everyone welcome to the Lost generation outside of the mainstream my name is william hooker i am a musician poet And part of this generation of artists. My goal with this podcast, which is being broadcast on its own YouTube channel and my website, williamhooker.com, is to introduce you to many of the musical artists that are outside of the mainstream and have made important artistic contributions to our culture. I have also interviewed producers of the music and many fans and supporters of this work. My guests are sharing what makes this art form unique and significant. I hope these conversations will inspire you to listen to the music, which may change you in the way you view music, which again is outside of the mainstream. Today, we are interviewing poet and recontour Steve Dalachinsky. I hope to be airing new interviews on the first of each month. We are presenting these interviews on our own YouTube channel. We have so many amazing interviews coming up that you will be hearing in the future. This is The Lost Generation, outside of the main. This is a story that needs to be told. See you next month. I'm William Hooker, and I'm going to ask my friend Steve Dalachinsky something about the lost generation that I've been thinking about for a while. And Steve, what do you think are these persons' contributions to the music? And I'll give you individual names and you can just uh, tell me what you think. First person, Burn Nix.
1: First I like to say that the I- idea of, of recognition and what one gets or deserves is both very subjective and objective and I think it depends on what one thinks he is due and how it, he goes about getting it and how much External and internal factors are, uh, are responsible for this, which sometimes is a choice that is made. As far as Byrne, um, I think Byrne, due to his personality, didn't put himself out there as much as he could. I don't think he had enough uh, backing, uh, despite the fact that he had a career with both two great artists of our time, Ornette Coleman and uh Jane Cortez. Um and but in a in a way due to my lack of overt knowledge of Byrne, I think he was a both a unique individual and as a guitarist, especially coming from the homilotic tradition, had a a unique sound uh within the tradition he was coming out of. Great. Craig Harris. Craig. Craig always had this very tough, what seemed like a tough side to him, but I think he's one of the greatest people I know. He's always been a human being to the arts and to me personally. Craig was one of the first cats I heard in the 80s who turned around my idea of what, the trombone can do as an instrument. He's mm-hmm. one of the first guys I heard who took the trombone into the high register. And he brought it to a place that for me was uh, made it way more palatable to me, except maybe when I was younger in the 60s and experienced Roswell Rudd and what he did with Archie Shep. So, yeah, for me, Craig. Uh, number one human, number one musician. Will Connell. Will, I knew, even on a more personal level than Craig, I thought Will was a great human being. He was a wonderful player. He did so many important things. Again, the connection to Ornette, which being a a, a was Is that the right word? Transcribing music and whatnot. Um, So he did a lot of I think and you know maybe people would slight me for saying this but I think Will was one of those artists who did more in the background than he was given credit for and when he did come up front as an artist he was also very humble but I've had I had talks with Will where you know he showed me how outspoken he can be but, um, he, you know, and it's hard if, you know, I don't want to go into unique or not unique as a player, but he was, a, he was a wonderful player, uh, on the instruments he chose. Um, he had a great mind and, um, he was, uh, a sweetheart. And I think like Byrne, he possibly did not have that, and I don't like calling it a quality, but He did not have that, I don't know what word to use, but he couldn't promote himself the way a lot of people do. And some people that you and I know well, who I never thought could promote themselves, but ended up doing it pretty good. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I mean, Will was one one of those overall, in my experiences with him, my general experience with him, one of those you know, quiet giants. Beautiful. And I don't think he ever accomplished what he could have, even though he was, you know, getting older. I think he could have accomplished a lot more. And he was finally getting to that point. But, you know, again, and I, I know you want me to keep it short, but because there's so many divisions within these scenes, whether it's poetry or music, there's so many divisions that, you know, even if we love a lot of the people in the so-called major scene we've been involved in, for lack of a better term, we'll call it... uh, There are a few different downtown scenes, but we'll call it the downtown free jazz scene if we want to. Yes, yes. I think not enough of those people who have... I don't even like to use this word, but let's say who have greatness in them Mm -hmm. or can transcend uh, their own abilities get a chance to be outside that scene... (laughs) <laughs> where I mean to really expand within other scenes where possibly knowledge of them could well they still might be overlooked but the knowledge of them could be greater wow. and I think Will was one of the per- people like Byrne because of some of the people he actually worked for who had way transcend- transcended um, I don't know if it's a shortcoming in, in one's own being or it's something they, didn't, they preferred not to do, mm-hmm. and, or maybe simply for safety felt comfortable in the scene they were yes, in. It's, there's so many questions, whether the person's alive or not anymore, that we'd have to ask that person, you know, like Roy. I know Roy Campbell, what his, some of his ambitions were, but he also stayed very much rooted in place.
0: Well, we won't talk about Roy Okay, right now. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about David Ware.
1: David, David Ware was a guy who... Um, you know, sometimes on a personal level, I had some problems with David's sound, which was very big. But the one thing I always said about David, um, and I would stand up for this, you know, anywhere, anytime, David was one of the few people... Whether you know he studied with Sonny Rollins or whatever his formidable background might have been, who was complete unique on his instrument, his sound was nobody's sound.
0: Do you think that that was part of his contribution to this music?
1: As an overall,
0: uh, in, in terms of the Lost Generation, was that one? Of his,
1: I, I would say David's. Yeah, I would say David's. I would say David's biggest contribution um, as an artist was yes. He did something that very few people on his instrument have done articulately and clearly which is he created a unique sound and within that sound he created and again speaking as a non-musician I wouldn't know how to say it in musical terms he also developed uh, a harmonic way of playing within what may sound to some people as a very static and monochromatic playing, but which contained so many colors, and and his um, intensity and energy um, as a... You know, I wrote something recently where um, loud doesn't mean powerful, mm. but in the case of some people, David being one of those, he was... I don't. Even, I wouldn't use the word loud. I mean, I use the word loud for guys I, I know, like young guys who think... Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, David, I think David was beautiful. bold. And mm. I would say, even though the sound to some might feel loud, right. I would say it was more big, a big sound. Like his mentor, Sonny Rollins at his best, has a big sound. Uh, but Sonny comes from a different... Tonal place, right? So right. I, I would say David contributed one a big sound that was unique to David, mm-hmm. and a certain way of where he he kept the energy at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. At, within an ebb and flow that was almost not visible, which is really imp- <laughs> really imp- very difficult to do. That it true. is, it yeah. is, it is. And and, yeah.
0: and I, I I recall Steve. I recall having to. Um, Asked David to perform my piece on the uh, very first recording, and when he asked how did how did I how did I want him to play it, I said and I knew that this was perfect for him. I said play it with majesty. Because he was he made that contribution I think in terms of uh, in terms of his stance with the tenor.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I would say "majesty" is also a word that can be very personally taken. How one, objectively and subjectively, because majestic, right? Majestic, but you know, also the thing is because I deal with language, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I look at language in that way. Like you know, David once, I think it was a solo concert, concert talked very heavily about his spirituality. Absolutely. And how that filters through his playing. Absolutely. And now the thing is, that's also something that one ear can hear and maybe one ear can't hear. Hmm. You know, I think they even, the ones who don't like where Coltrane went, they, like for me, I understand, for some reason, I, don't, I understand is a bad word because I don't think any of us understand anything, but I get. Coltrane Spirituality. Yes. I got it from the first minute I heard it. Yes. So, um, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who don't get anything about Coltrane, particularly the latest stuff. Like when I tell people now, I think Interstellar Space is a major masterpiece. No matter how much I love, love Supreme, Interstellar Space is what I prefer. Just like with Miles Davis, I prefer a certain period rather than the period I thought I preferred like you know the miles smiles period and with david he when you listen to david at the beginning you know with Cooper Moore or you know flight of i and not flight of i the one he did for had I, I just blocked the name of it up and then you go to uh, later i know what david i liked the best but david was consistent david was to to be really honest if we talk about that sound like Culture and you can follow every move he made. Uh, with Miles, it was almost there from when he started. With Monk, almost there from the first Monk here. And the same with one of my heroes, Dolphy. You put on a Dolphy record, whether it was when he played you know, in California with, uh, I forgot the big band Roy someone, or when he played, went from there to Chico Hamilton, even if his sound got bigger and somewhat more expansive, but, you know, almost the first Dolphy you hear on record. It's almost a complete Dolphy as a sound. And then, you know, as a composer and whatnot, he grew exponentially so quickly, you know, just like that. Do you think that... I think think David was like that. I think David's sound and his ideas were already pretty formed. I mean, I could be wrong because I haven't heard David like when he was, you know, 15 or... Eighteen, Sure. You know, before sure. he was on record. But I'd say everything I've heard on record, he got stronger with that big sound, I but it. that sound was always there.
0: But not only him. Um, I, I am trying to, I'm trying to probe you about how you feel about this lost generation we're speaking about and the consistency of those people's sounds. Because you did mention many people that are of the era before us my yeah. question my question to you is, is uh, is that something you see consistent in those players that have developed a certain mastery in this generation that we're speaking of as well? People like Roy Campbell, people like Billy Bang, people like um, William Parker, people like uh, Khan Jamal, um, people like, um, geez, J.D. Perrin. Um, do you feel do you do you feel that about many of us?
1: Or I you I it? think every I think everybody has an indiv- individual voice. I like Khan Jamal. I you know yeah. when I heard him, I thought he was a you know really good vibe player. Yeah. I don't know if he extended or expanded the language, and I I, I don't know his overall work. You know, well enough from beginning to end to say that. With Roy, I think Roy, speaking earlier before the film about, you know, Lee Morgan, Lee Morgan was Roy's mentor. I think Roy was sometimes an inconsistent player, but when Roy was completely on target, he was always on fire. And Roy was, um, no matter whether he was writing tunes that, is he were easy for us to hum. He, he could he was a, an example of. Continually growing as an ins what I call an inside outside player. Hmm. now Now, uh, William, William. No, stick with Roy for yeah, a yeah. second. So, yeah, So, because because and I he's really my birthday to, brother. So, I really. You know, oh <laughs> wow! Yeah,
0: because I really, wanna, I really wanna, uh, you know, I want to. I really want to. You know, Roy and I had a ver-
1: Roy and I had a very special bond, as I know Roy had with other people as well, but, you know, and Roy and I were two of the... You know, he's one of the only people, uh, except for maybe one or two others who were no longer with us, who we could talk on the telephone and we could say how we felt about people and things and the scene, and uh, I need that a lot, and I don't find that enough. And, you know, people just think I'm a big complainer, but some of my complaining... Is justified and some is unjustified, just being a bitter old guy. But like someone once said to me, "I don't wear my bitterness well." I understood exactly what she meant, but you know, I was. Also, I think you're on a target. I was also we'll talking to. I was also talking to someone who, like, you know, married a really rich guy and lived in a huge loft. <laughs> I think you're on. Target. You know, whatever. But I don't wear my bitterness well. But aside from that, Roy wasn't too good at wearing <laughs> his bitterness you. well either. And I know some people who liked Roy, or maybe even loved Roy and his playing, but they would say to me man, Roy said, Baba, and I said, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, you know, Roy's got uh, some very, you know, and of course these are, you know, we all look at what we're saying as, wow, that's the be all and end all, but I think Roy knew that he was speaking for Roy.
0: But are we talking about his personality or are we talking about his music?
1: History? I think both. I think Roy okay. was always speaking for Roy. I think Roy was very aware of his roots. Yeah. He knew he he was coming out of people like Booker Little and and uh, and Lee Morgan, and he knew he was developing a place in jazz. Great. And I think he, he, I don't, I can't say where he would would have gone. I mean, like I feel really even weirder because I was talking to Roy the night he died, and I was going to walk him to the train, and I, and he was taking a long time to pack up, and. It was one of those gigs. There were more guys in the band than in, in the audience. That's very insane. And, um, you know, I said, I'll call you on Monday because I had just did something that's very rare for me to be able to do. I got him a good gig in a museum for good bread. You. And, you know, uh, and, the, and you know, the thing is, poof, you know, then the next day I'm supposed to talk to Roy, he wasn't there anymore. So, I, yes, you know, yes. it, it was really a freak yes. out for me. So, you know, the thing is, and Roy and I did gigs together and, you know, I was once part of a gig that, you know, the curators, in their own way, didn't want me part of. And Roy said, "I want you to come up there and read a poem about Coltrane." And Absolutely. I said, I said, "Great." You know, and you know, Roy wanted me there. You know, I, I was there. There's a few. I mean, now I do that for lots of people if they ask me well, because that, I've broadened my horizon. That
0: attests <laughs> to Roy's spirit. Yeah. And his and this feeling mm-hmm. of in my in my in my thinking, Steve. Roy was a giver. Yeah, Roy was a giver, and 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 I'm, I don't know. A lot of people they shelter themselves. Roy was not like that.
1: He was, he was a very like exposed that. cat. He,
0: he was not like he was not like one of these people who uh, even even if he knew you or didn't know you, he was open to the point of I want to know you.
1: Right, but he also was able to do one thing that I've really never good at, which is. If it was a circumstance where he had to be okay, yeah. okay to the people. Uh-huh. He kinda could do that in public. Not all the time, but sometimes. I find it very hard to do it in public if you know that you know, sometimes I think about oh I know that cat did this and I never liked that, but you know, the person themselves, we get along fine. But you know, sometimes if there's somebody in public that I feel is wrong, or fake, or whatever, it's very difficult for me. He was a little better with that, and then he let it out on the telephone. I hear you. I think if I knew how to navigate at now being almost 71 years old, without having any formal education, I think I'd get a little more than I'm getting, and some of what I've gotten, that's kind of okay, and then there were those people who think, probably even with Royal, he's getting way more than he thinks he's getting, because a lot of us want, you know, everybody, whoever they are, whether they're zillionaires or poor people, we all want more than we have. And that goes for recognition of our artwork. That's true. And for our being as human beings. Like, I you know, I want people, if people don't like parts of my personality, I would like them, if they don't want to deal with me, that's okay, but maybe you can't separate the person from their art. I found that out with someone whose music I love dearly. But maybe it's time you should separate the person from their art, unless you don't like their art either, that's cool.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like
1: a guy who doesn't, you know, like me or my wife and even went so far as threatening me, we don't know why, he's a fellow artist. We used to share so many things in common. I get it. So if you don't like something, you know, say it. But the problem is most people don't want to rock the boat And a lot of people are afraid I'm going to rock the boat. And I think some people felt that way about Roy. Because some people would come up to me and say, man, Roy just talked to me and blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, yeah, I talked to Roy an hour or so the other night. Now, how much of that Roy... I always looked at Roy and I knew when he was happy and when he wasn't happy. And sometimes that had nothing to do with the music. But the, the bottom line is at least Roy felt comfortable enough that if he couldn't vent it anywhere else, he could call me or some other people and say, man, I don't like the way this is. Louis Bellaginus. You want to pass on one? Okay, fine. I'm, I'm good.
0: Cool.
1: Um, oh, I, I will... Dickie. I will say one thing about Louis. Yes. Uh, I was... Uh, at a gig I was part of with Louis, and uh, it was the first time he heard Rashid Ali play. Yeah. And Louis said to me, um, asked me if I knew him, I said yes, so I introduced the two of them, and that's what started that bond with him and Rashid. Uh, I When Louis first started playing, the first time I heard Louis play was a solo, and then the second uh, time I heard him was with this Michelle Kinney, who moved out of... Out of New York, she was a cello player. And to be her. really honest, what struck me about Louis' playing wow. was he was Zorn's only student. I heard him in the knot room. You're absolutely right. I heard him in the knot room at the old knitting factory. And Louis was playing something on the saxophone that wasn't really Zorn, but was not jazz. And Louis, you might hate me for saying this, but I loved that part of Louis' playing way better. I hear you. As a non... Okay. As what I considered a non-jazz language. Yes. Uh, because it, it was something that, when I heard it was... Com- I remember exactly when the first time I heard Louis, I was in sitting in the, in the bar outside the knot room of the knitting factory on Houston Street, and I was with some German friends of mine. We were all getting drunk, and I heard, oh. I heard something, and I said, guys, i got to take a walk 10 feet and go in that little room and see what's going on there. Louis played to very few people. Maybe five people, even that, and I came out about a half hour later and said, "Man, this cat, he's doing something on the tenor that nobody's doing," and he was. So I love Louis playing, and um, I'm glad he, you know, hooked up with Rashid. And but I, there was a, there was a, there was a part of Louis playing before he got more in, involved in the Coltrane and jazz <laughs> language that I, I, as a listener, I liked better.
0: Well, all right then. Um, Trudy Silver.
1: You know, I put Trudy on that list uh, because I know Trudy for a very long time. I cannot really speak enough to her playing. Although the first time I heard Trudy, her husband was promoting concerts, and he promoted one of Matt Ship's early concerts.
0: The
1: her husband is no, no, born. he's not. No, Bruce, 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 Bruce Mars. Bruce. So Bruce was promoting concert and the concert was Trudy Silver and I forgot who Trudy played with. It might have been Booker T. Williams and Matthew was doing a duo with I'm 90% sure was Steve McCall Hmm. and uh, it was one of Matthew's first concerts in New York that I remember. Uh And I thought Trudy was a really wonderful pianist Uh and um, sometimes her projects which is not because of her, it's just because of me. I'm not so into projects where there's a lot of talking and, and politicizing and blah blah blah. I I like more when I'm hearing music to hear the music. Wow. Uh-huh. Ex- except in a rare case like Archie Shep on fire music, you know, reading okay. Malcolm or some great thing like that. Right. But um so I, I thought I found um Trudy to be a wonderful, wonderful pianist and um I don't think she's been allowed for whatever reason that is to play enough Public concerts, and and she's certainly a, and, and keeping Five C Cultural Center alive with Bruce is a, mm-hmm. is a big uh, plus for the community. And I, I think um, she is one person who should get more recognition. How many
0: artists-run places do you know exist to the, to at this day? Not that many, I would think, right? I
1: think I found out only last year that I-Beam is artist-run. Uh, then Zorn. In Manhattan? Oh, in Manhattan. Yes. N- none except John's. And even though he's moving to the new school, it'll still be under his auspices. But I guess Trudy, John, and. That's difficult. You know, the isn't rare it? cat who may have a salon in his place. That's, but that's like very that.
0: difficult, isn't
1: it? I, probably, yeah, I would say. You know, she, know what I mean? Yeah. She has to that's to actually that. artist run? That's right. Yeah, and other than Arts for Arts, which has a kind of. Uh, you know, they're not always in the same place every year although they've been pretty stable for the past few years, there's very few in, in Manhattan that are artists. And I think, going back to what you asked me about Craig Harris, mm-hmm. I think Craig is very, 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 he's involved with a church in Harlem, sure. and I think he's very, really, super involved and wants to make sure that what I can see him doing with David Murray, who's back in New York now. Mm-hmm. He really wants to maintain and heighten this idea of artist, of artist run.
0: Charles Gale.
1: Well, you know, you, well, you know my history with Charles. I mean no, sadly, I, don't really I haven't talked to Charles in a very I read your poems. Okay. I haven't talked to Charles in a very, very long time, but
0: what's his contribution to this music?:
1: well, uh, <laughs> Like a famous poet who I once took to see Charles. Um, she said to me after the gig yeah he's good but you know I've seen it before I've seen Albert Eiler and all that and I you know I said I left it alone because I understood what they meant but you know like when I first saw Charles uh, someone who doesn't come to music much anymore Karen Burdick uh, before I got friendly with her she was handing out a flyer in front of the knitting factory on Houston I was going to see something she gave me a flyer and she said to me, like someone said 20-odd years before that, but opposite. She's, someone, when I was a kid, said, as I was walking down McDougal Street, I know you like Cecil Taylor. You should go around the corner to the Dayton's. There's a guy, he's the Cecil Taylor of the saxophone. His name is Albert Isler. He's got his new record out, Bells. I went and bought Bells. There was Albert Isler for me. And, and Karen said the exact opposite thing, but almost the same. She said, I know you like Albert Isler. So you should come next week and hear the saxophone player Charles Gale. And I said, i got nothing to lose. That's the first poem in my book. And, um... What was that? It was Where at the Old Knitting Factory. Oh, okay. And okay. just like the poem said, he's playing and it was raining and the little tree was whipping against the window and there was me, my friend who passed away, John D'Agostino, the painter, and maybe three other people, and John talks more than I do, and I looked at him and said, wow. I went home and the first thing I said to Hugo, I met a guy tonight who talks more than I do. And I said... Charles Gale? No, no. Don Charles Agostino. Uh And I said, but we we both love music and this cat's history is incredible. And I said, I heard a saxophone player tonight. He renewed my faith in the music. And uh, I said, you got to come with me next time she came. She felt the same way. I got... To use a terrible term, I got addicted to Charles, I went to almost every concert, and as you know by the book, I started writing a poem for every gig I saw. Why did you go
0: to every concert? What was it that was being fed?
1: What was being fed? Yeah. Most of the time, if I wasn't overly, in your words, yeah. overly involved with myself, no, in your if words, I can get out of myself while he was playing... Uh-huh. He fed me everything I needed—energy. If, you, got be if you want to talk about spirituality, whatever that is, uh-huh. I don't know what that is. But okay. he fed me. He fed me. Yes. So much power, both technical and manifest in his playing. So much of what I was yearning for every time I put on and got, whenever I put on the right Isla record or the right Coltrane record or even less, you know, players who were were not that outside like, uh, you know, a good Horace Silver record even. You know, I mean, you know, he fed me what I needed from the music. I mean I've always liked the rhythm sections or this and that and at that point Charles wasn't into the speeches and he wasn't into the mime thing. You know, he would would just play literally facing the wall and he hardly spoke in the beginning and um, musically he nourished me he gave me everything I needed and uh, he gave me almost almost why I'm saying almost is because there's a point later in life where not everything an artist does works for you or as much as you know I heard Cecil when I was a teenager and I you know I've you know and you know, sometimes later in life, I would still know what he's doing, but you know, my Cecil bro- Taylor. yeah, but my brain wasn't reacting, you know, because somehow you get closed sometimes, and it, nothing opens you up. But Charles gave me almost everything. And you know, for me, the one thing that attests to that beside me being able to talk about it was, even at a point where I realized what I was doing was becoming a book, and sometimes I would write the poem intentionally because I was already in this groove of writing a poem every time I heard Charles play. I even wrote a poem in there where I chose to go to a different gig instead of Charles's mm-hmm. and that gig I managed, someone managed to give me a recording and there's one other gig I know I didn't write about because I missed it going to an Oscar Brown Jr. concert mm-hmm. and I think constantly, wow, Charles played with Henry Grimes in the church, that was the only time, maybe they played one other time together and that was the first time. And you went, but I loved Oscar Brown Jr. It was a rare time to go see him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a tough choice, you know? But but Charles always, even when I was intentionally starting to write poems, knowing this is a manuscript and I hope it gets published one day, uh, I knew that unless a fluke happened, I'd walk out of there saying, wow, another great guy. And Yuko felt the same way. She came with me to almost every gig of Charles. And probably during that period, Well, the book covers the '80s through 2006 or something. So, I went to almost, except maybe a couple, almost every concert that I knew Charles was doing. In, in you know, I'm not I'm not a crazy guy. I'm not going to do like other guys that would jump in a car and go to Philadelphia to go to a concert or Connecticut or somewhere. You know, but everything, except in a rare case where he was playing within the boroughs, mm-hmm. when, he went, when he played at Milford's house, wherever, I would mm-hmm. try to be at that gig. And um, I was almost, I'm saying almost because it's safer to say that, yeah. but I would say I was almost never disappointed. What to me Charles contributed to the music, beside if you listen carefully, a unique s- sound that comes out of other unique sounds, and a continuance and extension and on some levels expanding of the music that very few people have done.
0: He's a multi-instrumentalist, right?
1: Well, you know, he went, mm-hmm. started playing the piano a lot, and he claimed that okay. that was his first instrument. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was a while, for a minute, he picked up the bass clarinet. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's all in that book. For two minutes, he picked up the violin. Okay. For three minutes, at the end, he started playing the bass a lot, which mm-hmm. kind of wasn't my forte. Okay. You know, and... Um, but he started to play everything, like bass wasn't his trip, but he really needed to play the bass. You know, so he, he took a lot of risks. And you know, violin, it was like, you know, Henry Grimes or on no, that, that screechy violin. Player, yeah. But he felt, he felt, he was a great bass clarinet player because he was such a great uh, tenor player, but he didn't play, I wish he played more bass clarinet actually. I and know. sometimes his piano is only Charles on the piano because you could tell at his best that he's a great piano player. Uh yeah. but uh but for me, you know, it's his tenor. And probably like with the guy like David Murray, if Charles played more bass clarinet, mm-hmm. I knew like David or Dolphy that he knew how to really handle the bass clarinet. Sure. So I would have liked a little more of that. But yeah, Charles Charles just did for me what no one was doing for me in the music except maybe Cecil. And and it's funny at that time I still thought Cecil was being Completely free form, and Cecil always had written stuff in front of him. Where Charles was one of the rare people who played a saxophone, who from the get-go, he never. In fact, I saw him do one gig once with someone I love dearly, who I won't talk about. But it was a written music gig, and it, like Daniel Carter, right? He, he doesn't just doesn't he didn't he could do it. He could read music. He just hated it. It because, didn't work. Well. It worked as good as it could work but he just, like Daniel, doesn't like reading music and Daniel could read Daniel could read the, uh, you know, Elliot Carter if he has to. He just, you know, wants to play free. And Charles is one of the only musicians I've ever seen since maybe the 60s and certain loft jazz gigs I went to who played free from beginning to end. Okay. And you know, sometimes he'd bring in melodies and the melodies were very close to island melodies because of Charles's, you know what ended up being a very heavy, almost right-wing, born-again, uh, God sensibility. And, you know, when he did those speeches in public, I got great poems out of them. And some guys I knew who I found out later were very important visual artists said, why do you still want to go see him? You know, he's talking, he's he's anti-abortion, he's, an, he's anti, he, he's talking to the wrong audience about this. I said... I said I understand that, but I said you have to remember one thing. I love the guy's music, and I may not get along with him on a on a political or whatever level, you know. And we used to talk on the phone for hours at a time for the first five six years of our relationship, uh, and um, we talked about everything. I mean, we went from Native Americans to slavery, and you know, he once talked to me something about slavery, and I said something about Native Americans, and you know i thought he's going to like jump on my case and he said wow well, i never thought about it that way you're right then
0: did you ever hear him put any of those um thoughts those political or social thoughts into music specifically i heard
1: him put i heard him put more of the... since
0: everything was always uh uh spontaneous well if you
1: music. if you listen if you read the titles of his music right it's very obvious not the p- not the politics couple. but like um i can't give you titles like
0: just one but View.
1: Well, let's say it's not his title, but, you know, similar to Eiler's titles like Spirits, okay. uh, Holy Ghost, you know, those kind of... Okay. And, um, but what you felt, once you got a sensibility of where Charles was at, yeah, one thing you felt, uh, I don't know about the politics. He, he played, okay. he played that out in the mime stuff and in his, his speeches... But you felt the, the religious part, sure. You know, you felt that when he said something about spirituality, because he might be coming from a, a God point that I didn't agree about. Okay. But yeah, he was very deep. And then when he played those Isler-esque type little melodies, and I yeah. once even said to him after his first recording session that I wrote the liner notes for, um, "Wow, man, you know." So, how do you think? Uh, I won't go into every detail about what he said about when I said I'm going to write the line of notes, but when I said, so do you feel you come out of Isla? Or a lot of people say you feel you come out of Isla. And at that point, he said to me, no, I come out of late Coltrane. And then later, of course, people were writing about him, that he came out of Isla. And I think he started to do what even I do sometimes now when someone says to me, great performance or something like that. I used to say, I don't perform, That's not, I'm not a performer. I even said that to someone last week because I just got so bummed out. But, you know, after a while, you accept that a little bit. It's just, you know, okay, whatever they, whatever they think. If they just can't say, great concert, you know, great, you. great Thank poem, you. you did a good job, whatever.
0: Thank you for tuning in. In months ahead, you'll have the opportunity to hear from many more Lost Generation artists and supporters. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to hear upcoming episodes.